It's generally good for a society to have the perception of itself that it's moving forward and that things are progressing. If we can become a space-faring civilization, we can have something to be a little bit more proud of. Hey, humans! Welcome to Demystifying Science, where we clarify confusing ideas, science, and technology by speaking with the finest Earth thinkers. Only the finest for demystifying science. So make sure to subscribe right now, so that in the future we can bring you all the brilliant minds that we find on Earth. Today, we're meeting up with space scientist Dr. Jean Masterson. She told us all about the hurdles to sustainable human space travel as you Earthlings spread out into your solar system. We also talk about how space travel can help unify the humans. Good luck! As well as the ethics and feasibility of terraforming projects. Which people are planning on Mars, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Masterson was a great conversation partner for this, because she's been working on human space travel for her entire career, basically. At first, she worked in atmospheric science at NASA's JPL, where her team planned and designed a tentative mission to study the far reaches of the solar system. They wanted to look at the atmosphere of Uranus. Then, she applied her skills to NASA's MAVEN project at the University of Arizona, where she helped design and implement a Martian orbiter also to study the atmospheric composition of the planet. And that orbiter actually went to Mars mm -hmm. and served its purpose. Afterwards, she worked at Bigelow Aerospace, where she collaborated with NASA. She led their Spacecraft Water Reclamation Project, which is a fancy way of saying that she built systems for harnessing water from pee. Yum. I know. Now she's headed over to the Paragon Space Development Corporation, where she's going to be in charge of establishing all kinds of new life support system projects that are necessary for long-term space flight. Yeah. So enjoy the conversation. As always, subscribe. It helps us out so much. And keep on demystifying my humans. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hello. So who are you? Uh, well, I am Jean Masterson. I am a scientist uh, currently involved in life support technology development for human spaceflight. What kind of life support? Uh, before, the main thing I was working on was water uh, recovery. So basically developing new ways of turning wastewater into potable water. So water that you can drink. Um, and in general, though, I'm interested in all the ways that humans are able to be sustained um, outside of the earth. So that's something that us humans has, have to worry about because we're squishy organisms that like air and water. And uh, that's an issue when you want to go and travel the expanse, as I'm sure you both know. Sure is. So are there a lot of humans that are... Going uh, into space? Well, right now, the most that we actually do is... Um, pertaining to the International Space Station. So uh, you normally hear it referred to as just ISS. And that's a place where humans have been living and working for uh, 
you know, more than a decade. And that's um, where we use that sort of base of operations as a way to test new technologies for life support. But that's only in the orbit that's very close to Earth. So it's low Earth orbit or LEO. And uh, now the whole movement that is recently sweeping kind of the aerospace industry in general is the uh, the move to get humans to venture outside of LEO and go somewhere farther again. We've been to the moon a few times, but it's been a while. So now there's the um, Artemis program, which is destined to send humans to the moon as more of like a test protocol. And then there are um, plans to make sort of a lunar depot, which is called the Deep Space Gateway. And so that would orbit the moon. And after that would be on to Mars, which is our nearest terrestrial body that you can step on easily. And uh, the whole problem there is that with the environment that is in LEO, there are some important differences when you get outside of LEO. Like radiation becomes more of an issue and you can't get new supplies from Earth. So that's where your life support systems have to be even better. So why do humans want to leave the Earth? That's a good question. That is a good question. And I think it has to do with just humans' urge to explore what they haven't already seen. So it definitely has some scientific value to try to like go to Mars, for example, and maybe bring back samples of the, the rocks because sample return missions are generally expensive and kind of tricky when you do it with just a robotic mission, but we have many robotic missions that have gone to Mars and um, explored in different ways, sent back data. But in general, I think that the human condition is really only satisfied by being there yourself or being present in the new environment instead of just having it remotely explored. So... so mm, it's like an instinct for you guys or something? Probably. I think that that's uh, a good way to put it. Uh, uh, not everyone has it, though. Not all humans. There are definitely the main outliers of the population are people like me who work on space development and want to make that a reality. There are people who are perfectly happy with not doing it. And what would they prefer to do? I'm not sure. I think just stay where they are. Maybe like, you know, have uh, build uh, some new city around them. I'm not sure what these people want to do, but that's a good question. So if you get humans into space and you're going to Mars, what are the sorts of life support systems that need to be designed? Mm hmm. So we have basically the basics of life support pretty much in a state of, um, I guess, readiness. And that would be your, first of all, you have to deal with waste management. So people excrete waste and uh, that needs to be dealt with. But then you have your atmospheric revitalization, which is basically removing carbon dioxide, but also removing the kind of um, the smaller molecules or smaller kind of waste products that just come naturally from either you sweating or um, your 
plastics that you're are surrounded by, like maybe leaching some molecules in the air. Hold so on. you don't want those things to build up. Why, why don't you just put your waste out into the space? Well, we want that air back, right? So if you're in space, you want to make sure that you keep your atmosphere with you. So when you have these small molecules that are in the air, it's not really effective to dump them into space because they're distributed what, in the entire atmosphere. What about the big molecules? What about the solid waste, liquid waste? Yeah, so liquid waste, I can answer first because that's um, a little bit more fun. And that is when now you get into your water recovery. So when you have liquid waste, you are going to want to basically reclaim that and uh, turn the liquid waste back into water. And you do that through different processes that remove the, the molecules that would make that water not able to be drank. Hmm. And uh, solid waste, that's also a good question. It becomes a very important problem for Mars, for example, just because there will be a lot of it on the way and uh, there's not really a good solid answer to what you should do. Uh, I know. <laughs> That's a good one. Can can you just launch it out there into space? Well, that is something that I think some people have talked about doing, but really what people think is the best option is completely drying it, um, which is another way to reclaim a little bit more water. Now, human solid waste is very dry in general. It's not actually that useful when you're going for a short trip, like you're spending a month or so or more than, you know, a couple of months on the ISS. You don't necessarily need to worry about drying your solid waste to get water back so you can survive. But you're also getting water from Earth periodically. But when you're in space, drying your waste completely will bring back that water into your, your system or your loop. And um, also, you might be able to use it as some form of radiation shielding sometimes, but that's not really immediately practical. Radiation shielding with poop? I mean, that is not necessarily an option that will be at the forefront of what will happen. And it's not actually that effective for the types of radiation that you get um, in the so Mars environment. Sort of like in nuclear reactors, how they use the water to s slow the radiation progression? Or? Yeah, water would be more effective as a shield because it has, um, you have smaller kind of nuclei in your atoms. And so for most radiation types, that's going to provide a better shield because once you have larger nuclei, and I'm not a radiation expert, but the, there is the problem that if you have larger nuclei and you get different types of radiation, you can get kind of, it's called delta radiation, where it's a nuclei then sheds particles, and those are also harmful. So you don't want to necessarily have that kind of thing happen. So you humans need water, mm -hmm. and you need to be able to deal with all this volume, right? Because mm -hmm. you're going to run out of storage space eventually. Yes, that is completely true. And that's another problem with the waste. The waste will build up, but then also you need to take everything you, you need. So it's a, it's a big issue to figure out how to get a big enough spacecraft out there and then also how to minimize that amount. So, for example, with 
your, so you can't really change how much food people will need. Like that's, we need food. That's not really going to change, but you can change how many, how many components you're bringing that will be used to um, replace the components that have kind of been used up. So that's something that you can improve on. And that's one of the active areas of trying to um, increase these technologies in terms of their performance is reducing how much types of consumables they actually go through. So that's one of the things. That's smart. Mm -hmm. So you minimize you minimize the sort of the starting materials by simplifying the food supply or what do you guys do? So if you have like, for example, maybe there's a certain filter that you need to use in one of your systems. Like uh, one of the examples is that you will get a lot of times media filters so you can have carbon media, which carbon media is a very good way to remove those small molecules I was talking about that are in air. So, cause it's a general kind of absorbent. You even use it to purify your water too and your like Brita filters. Mm-hmm. So these are things that when you, if you're using it and you're heavy on the consumables, you could have very pure water, but you could be going through these cartridges basically like, once every three months or something. And the idea is to kind of reduce that to once every year, three years, that kind of thing. So you don't have to take as much with you. You don't have to take as much resupply. Now, could you mine water somewhere? Yeah, I was just about to ask that. Is there supplies Mm. out there somewhere? Even for oxygen maybe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's another thing. On Mars, for sure, if you're in the right spot, there's water, but it's not exactly known how much there is that exists like um, over the whole surface, like underneath the rock and what level. I don't think that that's been fully like figured out, but there's definitely one of the polar ice caps has mostly ice water. But basically there are places that we can get water and I don't know if it's as readily available on the moon, but people do talk about trying to mine these resources. One of the terms that's used in the the field is in situ resource utilization or ISRU. And that is where you basically are using these things. But with oxygen, yeah. So oxygen actually is replenished on the space station by splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. So if you have some water, you can have oxygen which is the thing that humans need to be okay and keep living. Do you lose a lot in all of these cycles? So you're getting oxygen from splitting water. Mm -hmm. Do you then eventually recover all of the water off of that somehow? Or are you basically losing it because it becomes part of the humans on the space shuttle or the space station? Well, there is, you can have a certain amount of loop closure where basically in a way what happens is that when you have water, um, which then becomes oxygen and hydrogen, that hydrogen then is often reacted with the CO2 that people breathe out, which is basically where the oxygen goes for humans. So oxygen becomes CO2. 
And then, um, so the hydrogen reacts with CO2 in what's called the Sabatier reactor, which is something that is active on the, the space station right now. And it uses a metal catalyst and high temperatures to then convert those two, um, those two chemicals into water and methane. So that's a way to then get back that oxygen in, in the form of water. What about the methane? Methane is usually just vented. Um, that's the general thing to do, but there are people who are thinking about what to do with the methane as well. But in terms of what we actually are needing, it really only comes in handy if you have like an excess of oxygen and you need more water or something, then you'd want that hydrogen back. But in terms of carbon, there's not a lot that humans would need immediately from that carbon source. So it's all about kind of balancing the, the different elements that make up human life, or I guess make us continue to live. Have you tried the water that gets regenerated before? I have not. And oftentimes it's mo mostly used for making oxygen and not necessarily water to, to drink or use to maybe rehydrate food just because people have a little bit of an easier time huh. breathing it. <laughs> Do humans have systems that allow them to grow things on these spaceships? Mickey grows his worms, which is a disgusting habit, but I have to tolerate it. Everybody's got to eat. Oh, is that your food source? I had That's the misfortune. <laughs> I've got a wormatorium in the back. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds really, really exciting. <laughs> are you, but, are um, you humans going to grow worms? We wouldn't grow worms necessarily. Uh, at least I don't think that there's a plan for that yet. There are one of the biggest kind of frontiers of life support um, would be trying to incorporate basically plants because plants are really good at doing that thing that we just talked about, which is turning CO2 back into oxygen. So right now on earth, we have a nice little relationship worked out with the plants. And if you can extend that into a situation where you're in a closed system, that would be beneficial for both parties but the only issue is that it takes a lot of, I guess, first off development, like that is not something that a lot of work has already been done to actually figure out. But also it's just funding wise, it's hard to get that moved forward. But that is something that will have to happen with extended missions, especially if there's missions where you are going to be staying. So I know for a Mars mission, which is right now like nominally, nominally is the word that's used often, but that basically is just like the kind of standard for what we think a Mars mission will be is about three years. And in that amount of time, you would you would want to grow some plants to at least like figure out how to make it happen. Do you know and if anybody's so, tried? Yeah, people have, I think there have been experiments on the ISS with plant growth. Um, usually it's not done in the form of trying to supplement the life support capacity. Like it's more of just figuring out what, what how plants actually work um, in, in microgravity. So what would, where do the roots go? Where do the leaves go? Like how do they actually situate themselves? Because 
on Earth, a lot of what plants do in terms of regulating their growth is dependent on gravity. Fighting the so gravity. They find... hmm? They're always fighting the gravity. They are. My question is about the complexity of these systems. Mm-hmm. Where I've read that on Earth, the way that plants and humans all grow together is very interrelated. There's lots of bacteria, mm-hmm. there's lots of funguses, there's all kinds of things that come together to create the environment. But on the spaceship, it's very difficult to create these sorts of stable systems that will promote health and longevity for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that's something that you're thinking about as you're designing them? Well, it is definitely more simplified right now in the field of, of life support. Um, and you're thinking more about molecules and trying to manipulate those balances with basically physiochemical means or just non-biological. But it is true that that will become something that will be more important as we step out farther is trying to understand what happens when you, maybe if you're colonizing a place, then you're going to start having to have a more robust ecosystem type of environment. And, uh, and that's mainly just to ensure that there's a certain level of stability and you don't want to be too dependent on something that has to, you know, be powered, like a turn on and off your oxygen generator. Like that would be nice if you didn't have to have that kind of um, limitation on what you can do. But I think that the main thing that's going to become important is the the role that microbes have, because Hmm. right now we're extremely careful about where we take microbes. And um, in robotic spaceflight, there's this whole basically department that's planetary protection, which means that they're trying to make sure that we don't bring any of our microbes to any outside body. And you can't really do that very effectively when you have astronauts because humans are covered in microbes. It's the natural way. So trying to figure out how you're going to deal with that and how you're going to allow that to become part of your environment and not be afraid of it. That's something that is definitely going to be the first thing to tackle when it comes to incorporating just other than just humans. So more organisms. Are you concerned that you'll run into other organisms out in the solar system that might not be good for you? Some people are. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, I, I'm not exactly sure if I'm concerned, but I would say that it's possible. And as we, you know, it's now very apparent that sometimes those microorganisms could potentially have a impact on a human population. So it would be wise to be careful of that. And I do think any manned exploration that, especially Mars, but then any other place where there could potentially be microbes, that's at the forefront of their mind of making sure that everything's contained and not doing anything drastic until the presence of microorganisms is fully understood. 
What about, Mickey, you wanted to know about the psychological stuff, didn't you? About humans spending a long time in space together? No? Well, you guys are having a hard time getting along on Earth right now, it looks like to me. Yeah, that might be a thing. It's true. Well, before we go into, yeah, that's that's something that who knows what's going to happen. Um, it could be a big problem, but they, at least with the NASA astronaut program, the selection for the actual individuals who go is primarily concerned with how that person will deal with a group situation. And uh, those types of people tend to be very easygoing. They're not going to cause a big problem or get too upset when maybe something happens they're not agreeing with. Um, but what about you two? How much time have you spent together by now in your spaceship? Well, since I'm asleep most of the time, Quinn doesn't mind me too much. Only when the wormatorium explodes do things get really tense. No, no. Yeah, we've had some contamination issues. We have very robust conflict resolution skills in general. Elephlossians are taught from a young age how to figure out, you know, conflicts between one another. We're all very different. But it does help well, that sleep good. We're trained heavily. Indeed. Indeed. Are humans looking to see the effects of leaving the planet behind on their psyches? I read a little bit about, you know, these experiments that they lock people in a room for six months with a group of strangers. Mm -hmm. But what do you think is going to happen when people go to Mars? Like lots of people. Like lots of people. And there's this whole community of them that's out there, totally separated from everybody who's on Earth. Mm -hmm. Well, well, I feel like at that point, I think the more people who are there will probably lead to a more stable society. But at first, I think would be the most fragile part where you could potentially have some very dramatic things happening just because of the sort of, you're basically focusing your very unique individuals together. So not everyone's gonna wanna go to Mars. So the people who wanna go to Mars, what are they gonna do when they get together in groups of hundreds? Are they gonna start a completely new society? Because there is no actual way that the earth could actually impact what they're doing in a realistic fashion. Like there could be societal ties that would be maintained based off of what you would think is a social norm. Like if, uh, you know, there's a United States embassy on Mars, that would be a place where they would try to be maintaining or at least linking back to the government on earth. But then there would likely, I think, be people who would want to just ignore those things and do whatever. Think, sorry, do you think that it would unify the Earthlings back on Earth? Like, would Mars feel like a different country or? I don't know if it would be a unifying force. That's something that's, a, I think that's a good question. Because, I mean, you know, as, as you both probably have seen, 
Um, the earth is going through something right now where we have a unified enemy, but it's not necessarily bringing everyone together and having people living on Mars. Hopefully that wouldn't be a unified en enemy. Um, it could potentially at first people would be happy that we've expanded beyond what's considered the cradle of humanity, which is our planet that we were born on. But I'm not sure what the long-term effects would be for politics back on Earth. Maybe it would be people trying to assert their don dominance over Mars just the same way as they assert their don dominance over different territories on the Earth. I'm not sure. I'm curious about what you just said with the humans on Earth right now. Because this is very interesting to us, your pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what? it's interesting to everyone. Why do you think that the singular enemy hasn't united the humans? Oh, I don't really, I'm not sure. <laughs> that is a good question. Uh, and I just can't, I can't be too sure. What do you think, um, Quinn? Well, I kind of figured that it seems like a lot of the humans don't necessarily agree. What do you mean? Mm -hmm. You know, there's some that think that it is an enemy. And there's other humans that kind of figure that it's not that big of a deal, right? What do you mean not that big of a deal? Well, it's not immediately noticeable. People can't necessarily, like, sense the urgency of it because it's not impacting them directly. And that's something I think humans have... Um, that is a problem is that it's like, even when we're talking about, so we're talking about life support, but part of that is learning lessons from our planet, which is so good at supporting our life. But in reality, in future generations and potentially in the current generation, things that humans have been doing that they didn't think would be a problem because they can't see the direct impact could hurt the planet in the future and hurt its ability to sustain human life. So it's kind of similar in that it's not a problem to the individual. So they don't really understand why they have to make it their own problem because it's a societal problem. Like humans don't have a good group think. Yeah. That seems to be one of the biggest fractures facing humanity right now. And so it seems mm -hmm. like space travel and getting out from the earth could give this unifying project to work on. But yeah, I would agree with that. There's not that many countries that work on this project, right? Well, it's becoming more and more. Um, and so if we kind of go back to what I had mentioned before with the Deep Space Gateway, so originally that effort was very international. And I'm not sure if that's the status of it right now, but the, the original proposal was that it would be basically a stack. So you'd have a stack that's built up in space of modules and different countries would supply different modules that are needed. So there would be um, like Canada, Canada would supply the Canada arm because Canada has a great technology where they have a manipulation device for spacecraft. Hmm. Um, and uh, Russia, I guess Russia was going to supply another type of module. JAXA, the Japanese uh, space sort of uh, group, they were going to supply something else. And then ESA, the European Space Agency, was also 
So it was supposed to be an international effort. And perhaps something like that could happen later on. But you say was supposed to be. That doesn't bode well. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure of the status right now, just because of the fact that these were all kind of pre-pandemic plans. So you talk about these modules, and we were talking to this space miner the other day. Oh, wow. He was really interesting. He promised us that there would be a base on the moon in 10 years, and that he was going to build inner solar system cruise ships. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds... Party liners. <laughs> but I would love for something like that to happen. I'd love to see it, but... What was your question about it, though? Yeah, so my question, well, I really just want to see what you think about his idea, was that modules would be easier to assemble on the moon because there's no atmosphere. So mm -hmm. you could just produce all of your components locally, stick them on a pallet, and rocket them up into orbit where you could assemble them. Mm, okay. Yeah, so so I guess you're talking about assembly of these kind of depots? And manufacturing, too, because there's this big question on Earth where I know that you are going through this really terrible crisis with the environment, and people are really worried about it being polluted and destroyed. And so if you could manufacture on the moon and get things into orbit more easily, have this gateway functional. Sort of externalize your damage elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not sure how bad it is to make spaceships on Earth, but back on Alvafloss, it's pretty dirty. Yeah, like, oh, would really? it be easier to have them on the moon and just have everything be cleaner and ready to go in space? Or is it just so hard to get anything done in space that it would be prohibitive? Well, so if we're talking about manufacturing materials, um, I guess that I'm not exactly sure what resources would be immediately available for something like the different kind of metals that are used in, in space. Um, you would have to have some sort of moon base for people. And I think one of the main things that would be a challenge would be that actually the lunar regolith is kind of a, uh, an issue. So it's the dust on the moon and it's very small and it kind of gets into everything. And it's been a problem that people have been tackling for um, a while now, just in terms of if you wanted to have a depot around the moon, how would you prevent something like a lunar lander that maybe went down to the moon and came back up from actually being contaminating the rest of your habitat with this this dust. So that's just something that would be a separate challenge. Huh. And uh, yeah. That's really fascinating. More, he didn't hmm. mention that. He seemed to hmm. think that everything could be made from the regolith. He was like, you'll just dump that into the foundry and then you'll have all the things you need. Do you have a baby? Your animal is making noises. <laughs> no, that is my animal. He's making noise. <laughs> we should get Hi, he's animal. A, he's a <laughs> he says hello. I, but, wish, uh, <laughs> I wish we had an earth animal up here. That'd be fun. We could see well, what do you have do. any animals of your own from uh, your planet? 
Not with us. Just the worms. <laughs> I survive but, off of rocks, and so it's a lot easier. Oh, so your your life support system involves rock, uh, something. And it's easy because most asteroids contain the minerals that I eat, and so as long as I've got my little microbiome and a couple of asteroids, I'm doing pretty well. All right. So. The space miner was actually saying that the minerals occur as oxides, so you could mm -hmm. harvest oxygen too mm -hmm. as a waste product. It's a pretty cool idea. Yeah. No, that would be. I mean, if you could, if you could build the infrastructure, I guess first you're going to have to at least do that, and um, that at first would have to come from the Earth in some way. But I'm I'm sure that it would be possible to extract a variety of different like useful chemicals from from the moon. Um, and then I think you you were also asking about assembly. So assembly in space is something that definitely has its benefits in terms of you can have a much larger spacecraft because when you're moving something from the Earth it takes a lot of thrust to get it out of a very large gravitational well. So if you don't need to expend that energy to move something large, um, you can theoretically build something up very large around the moon and then send that farther than it would ever be able to go from Earth. It was interesting. He was saying that the biggest problem wasn't gravity. It was the atmosphere. He was saying that hmm. the tube shape of these rockets you guys use had to do with the aerodynamics of throwing a bunch of stuff out of the atmosphere. Yeah, how hard hmm. is it to get stuff into space? And you're talking about these systems on the space sh station. I was going to say space hmm. shuttle, but you guys don't have that anymore. So when you make something on Earth, what are the constraints for getting it up into orbit and then past orbit? Is it much harder to get something past orbit into transit between the stars? Or is it sort of once you're in orbit that you've done the hardest part? It's, it's once you're in orbit. It's leaving the Earth. Um, yeah, that's basically, when you think about it in terms of how much energy you need, or I guess how much... Um, the term that's used a lot in sort of the the industry is delta V, which is just how much change of velocity is required. And that equates to how much fuel you have to use. And so when you're thinking about that, the biggest expense is always leaving the earth and getting to orbit. Then from there, you can do a lot of things for much less energy. But then it becomes, how do you get that fuel, for example? How do you get fuel up into um, Earth orbit? And then how would you be able to refuel your spacecraft? That's something that could potentially happen there. What do you but use? Those are, well, right now, um, there's kind of two different methods of propulsion, which is the way that we move around in space. And one of them is called high thrust, and that's a chemical propulsion so that's what you see with the, the SpaceX rockets and things like that, where you have the, the, the rocket burning and it's 
you know, um, very much like a missile or something. But then you also have electric propulsion. And that's something that uses just ionized atoms. And it uses the force of those leaving the rocket. And that's something where you can have a much slower transition, a much slower force, but it's better for longer periods of time. So you can theoretically go farther with those, but it just takes longer. And, um, but it is a little bit, it's more energy efficient. Is there but a what limit? About, oh, mm -hmm. I was gonna say, is there a limit to the number of humans that you can support in space right now? It's a little bit of a different question. It's moving away from propulsion. I think she was going to ask about our secret inertial drive. We can't talk about the secret inertial drive. Oh, okay. That was what I was going to ask. <laughs> well, okay. you got to figure that out yourself. Fair enough. <laughs> it is faster. Um, it's faster than what? I can't say anymore. <laughs> we'll get in trouble. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so right now on the space station, I think it's usually the limit is about six people. I think that you can stretch it a little bit. I'm not exactly sure what the complete upper limit would be, but that's about as much as the life support systems can maintain and make sure everybody has enough air and enough water. And it's also enough um, that the resupply missions can maintain. So the ISS is actually resupplied about eight or nine times a year. This brings fresh supplies and other um, things that are needed, such as the, the consumables I was mentioning for the different life support systems and those kind of things. And what do you think is the next stage for human space exploration? Well, I think after, um, I guess the, the first thing we have to do is kind of go back to the moon and make sure that we're okay with that sort of level of mission because there are challenges for going farther than LEO and these have to do with not only the radiation issues but also the issues with decreasing your supply and making sure that people aren't going to have a big issue with leaving Earth for a long period of time as you guys kind of we're talking about. But after that, I would think that once you have established your ability to have these sorry, longer missions, then it would be more of the colonization issue. And if that was something that actually becomes, I guess, economically feasible and also soci sociologically feasible, are people gonna want to do this? Are they gonna want to leave the earth forever? They're going to want to go and retire on Mars. And that's something that uh, I'm not sure. I don't know how many people would want to do it. Um, I do think there's a fair few, but would it be enough to sustain like an actual active colony? Would they be the same people you would want to do it too? Oh, I don't know. It seems like the people who would want to leave and go to Mars might not be the best team players. This is possible. Mm -hmm. You're I no know. <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. Well, what, if, what happened uh, on your world? Was there a colonization step or is it just you and your home planet? Well, our stories, I guess I can take this one if, 
There you go ahead, go ahead. You can jump in. But our world's pretty unique because we've actually been in a few different solar systems. We had to move our entire planet one time. Oh, wow. Three times, actually. Was it three? Two? It was before my time. These stories get confused. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt, though. Go ahead. So, yeah, we've had to deal with this being a guest in someone else's house a few times now. Hmm. Mm -hmm. We destroyed an entire planet one time accidentally. Oh, no. Tell her about that. Well, so we moved Alva Floss into its fresh solar system. And we accidentally destroyed the gravitational balance between all of the other planets. And we made one of the gas giants that was on the outside of the solar system actually fly into the sun. It got cooked. It was a near miss. Turned into a little rocky thing, like, <laughs> looked like Mercury after it was all over. It was oh, no. Yeah, that is, uh, that's an issue I could imagine. Did you have any neighbors that were complaining? Well, we picked a solar system that didn't have any... Generally, you know, when you move in space, you're trying to make sure you don't have neighbors because mm -hmm. conflicts inevitably arise. <laughs> Folks are oh, territorial. Yeah, if you think that people on Earth are territorial, wait until you get into space. Huh. That's part of the reason right. we're here, actually. We took note of your little probe leaving the heliosphere recently, and our boss sent us out here to make sure you guys don't throw any more trash out into space. <laughs> Well, okay, that makes sense. And that goes along with the, the, the human or the solid waste and not just chucking it out in the, into space. We're trying not to just be, you know, polluters outside of the, uh, the Earth. Well, that's a really interesting question because mm -hmm. it seems like space is so big mm -hmm. that you could never, ever get to be big enough to actually pollute it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to clarify, I didn't mean pollution, really. I was more concerned. <laughs> well, our higher-ups are more concerned that you humans haven't figured out how to get along with each other yet, so we can't have you bringing chaos into the galaxy. Though yeah, I, will say, I will say the Voyager probe was made you guys seem pretty like you figured things out. I wasn't expecting such chaos when we got here. There was a lot of optimism on that probe. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's still optimism, um, but it just depends on how humans can do when they are stressed and they have to kind of make hard decisions to sacrifice certain, I guess, uh, luxuries in order to allow for greater good to come about. And, um, you know, I, I guess that this would also be something that would have to happen with the future of space exploration for humans, because if you are trying to leave the Earth, there's going to be a lot of dirty work to do in the beginning. If you are going to go and colonize another planet, it's not necessarily going to be a comfortable existence. So I think that most people generally see that as a noble pursuit. And I guess one of the more concrete reasons why you would want to do it is because of the fact that one day, you know, you, you, say, you both said you, have to, you had to move your planet. 
well, we don't necessarily know how to do that yet. And one day there could be some sort of issue that comes around where the earth is in jeopardy and is, uh, you know, destroyed or becomes inhospitable. And we would need a second home in order to be okay. And I guess that that's something that is another thing we'd have to kind of sacrifice some comfort in order to allow for that to happen. Is the process of, you know, going to the moon or going to Mars, starting this conversation on Earth? Or do you think that people are still having a hard time connecting the dots, so to speak? Um, with the whole fact that having a presence outside of Earth would, in the long run, ensure our continued survival? Is that what you mean? And just, I've heard humans in other situations express that they don't need to be very concerned about the future. Have you heard this, Mickey? We were talking to one human a few weeks ago. Yeah, where we were talking about, you know, that you have to watch out for someone who isn't even born yet. Like and on Alva Floss, we consider the future Alva Flossians as subject to our morality. Like, if we hurt them, we would be doing a moral infraction. Exactly. S since our morality is based on consent, we're violating their consent in the future. It makes it very difficult to make decisions and to agree on what the future should look like sometimes because mm -hmm. you have to go through lots of iterations of possibilities and think about many moves ahead. And mm -hmm. it seems like there is some of that that's missing on Earth. But mm -hmm. space travel in general is one of those ways that the conversation can really start because of the vastness of it, because of the time that's involved in it. Mm -hmm. Do you see people starting to think about these questions about, you know, many generations down the line, or is it still difficult to get people to think like that? Well, I, I do think that at least a, a fraction of humans are thinking about this, and I think one of the most uh, pertinent examples here would be the idea of terraforming. So the idea of taking a planet that's not, would not be able to support human life and turning it into a planet that could. And um, I think someone's calling you. Yeah. I might have to go take care of my cat real quick. You can <laughs> take a moment if you'd like. Do your thing. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go and uh, move him. Just so he doesn't continue to yell. I'm going to practice my cat call. Can we see him? <laughs> okay, hopefully hopefully that'll settle him. Uh, but you were talking about terraforming. Yes, terraforming. Um, so basically that's the ultimate form of life support technology in a way. Um, making a inhospitable rock with no atmosphere or very little atmosphere into a lush green watery world and that's kind of the ultimate dream and there have been plans that have been developed for 
doing this on Mars and also Venus. Venus is one planet that could potentially be terraformed. Really? Yeah. It's actually so hot, very right? interesting. It's extremely hot and very has a very dense atmosphere. So it would be a very different problem than the problem of terraforming Mars, where you'd have to add atmosphere and add heat. So with Venus, you'd have to, to take those away. But it's possible. It would just be a different kind of feat of engineering. Wow. And uh, yeah, so these are things, though, that if you wanted to actually um, take part in, you would not necessarily be able to see any of the results in your own lifetime. Mm. Even the most um, optimistic projections of these kind of transformations of planets are still on the order of hundreds of years. So that's something that I think at least there's been a bit of concept work done and something that I think uh, kind of stimulates the human imagination that is still something that would be a benefit to your your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. Yeah, I wanted to ask what the role of fiction narratives in developing a lot of these ideas is. Like, is everything coming from science alone? How much of it is informed by the dreams that your people have had in the past? Well, I think that there's a lot that has... I think uh, science fiction is, I guess, the, the genre. And I do think that that often has sort of prophetic influence in the bigger leaps that humans take. And really, uh, I think uh, this is true of all beings. Humans need that imagination first. You need to think of the new way of doing something. And that requires you to look beyond the status quo and try to determine what different ways you might go about doing something that you would have never thought before. And that requires that, um, sort of narrative imagination. And I think a lot of scientists can claim that they've been influenced by science fiction, for sure. We've seen that. What are the, what are the ethical considerations of terraforming? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think in my mind, it's more having to do with if there is a form of life already there, you know, you can't necessarily be ruining their environment to better suit your own needs. And this is something that I have, uh, I've looked into a bit myself just because terraforming is one of my main interests. That's kind of a little bit, um, not necessarily going to pay the bills yet, but it's something that I enjoy learning about. And I know with Mars, there was a group that discussed the ethics in terms of that, like what you would need to do to guarantee that there was no life on Mars. And really, it seems like it would be irresponsible to try to terraform without at least a century of research. It's just, it's hard to know. And we still don't completely know if there is life on Mars that's different than life on Earth. There's just been too many inconclusive results. And the whole idea of what life is, is a definition that's based off of our limited experience with life on earth. And so, you know, you'd need to really dig into that completely. So you could be absolutely sure. Wow. And that's one of the reasons. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I would argue we should look to Venus because Venus is a place where 
there's likely to be, if there is life, it's very, very different. Um, I don't think it would be extremely likely for there to be life on Venus versus Mars. Mars, you can see why. It used to be wet in its history. It used to have an atmosphere that was thicker. It used to be warmer because it had an atmosphere, which held in the, the heat. So with Venus, it's been kind of a pressure cooker for a long time. And it might be a better option if we're worried about those ethical considerations. Now, this is a very responsible attitude you have. <laughs> Do you think that other humans share this attitude with you? A hundred years. Yeah. We need to get I, you. I don't think so. We need to get you in charge of the whole space fleet. <laughs> I think that's a good idea. We might be able to oh, arrange well, something. Thanks. Yeah, well, we'll talk to some people. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds, that sounds great. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if there would be any uh, people who would actually seriously delay that if there was a, a force that had to do with maybe monetary gain or something like that, which is hard to really imagine right now that scenario. But if there was some sort of extreme so social or political force to terraform Mars, I don't think anyone would stop and say, hey, wait, maybe there's microbes and we should not. But uh, on the other side, there are people, I think, that would be kind of not wanting to change the natural anything. So if you think about mining even on the moon or just trying to find resources elsewhere outside of the Earth, I think there's a subset of people who would not be uh, for that anyway, just because it's... Oh, I have a question. Mm -hmm. So... It seems like there's some sort of conflict of interest between the science and the technological advancement. So what the engineers do, right? Mm -hmm. So on yeah. our planet, the scientists and engineers are different people. But we noticed on Earth, it's kind of a hodgepodge. Mm -hmm. How do you yeah. protect the scientific sanctity of these specimens going forward from the technologists who are making all the money on your planet? Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. And I think um, I can kind of use an example of, I think this is the way humans tend to operate, which is, let's say you have a highway that you're trying to build a lot of times when there's a massive undertaking on earth, that's like an engineering partially destructive undertaking, they'll send in geologists who are the scientists to hurry up and get what they need from the natural environment before the engineers go in and then kind of re remodel it. So usually there's an effort to ensure that if an environment is going to be altered, by a technology effort, then you would have at least a preliminary ability to study quickly or not quickly, depending on how much people push for either type of um, interaction with the environment. But I think at first people try to at least have some level of scientific understanding of what they're doing or of what they're trying to alter. So it's generally a concern even if it's not the dominant mm -hmm. motivation. 
yeah, I think that that's something that people try to at least maintain. You're not going to go in and just start changing everything before you don't feel like you at least understand it more than 50% complete. People would like to be able to understand something completely, but with something like Mars and the actual the actual environment that it has, the the interaction between the Martian soil and the and the atmosphere and the water that is there in certain forms, like it's going to take a long time to fully understand the dynamics of that. So the complete understanding of that might not happen fully if there's a terraforming effort. Hmm. But I think that there's a there's a gray area that people tend to exist in where it's like if you feel like you've you've gotten enough information and now you want to start trying to play around and do something a little bit more in terms of like making an application. There's a lot of reasons to, you know, press on the brakes with something like this where Mm -hmm. you want to go slower. And I feel like we've talked to people and kind of gotten a sense for what that is. Do you have a sense for reasons to step on the accelerator? Like, is there any condition that you think that throwing caution into the wind is a good idea? Like, beyond instinct, is there any Mm -hmm. urgency to all this space exploration? Yeah. Well, I think right now the primary urgency that exists is based off of the fact that a lot of younger humans are starting to, at least I I think there's a sense that, is it even something we can do? Hmm. We were pushed from uh, a comfort zone during the last space race, largely due to political forces, which got us to the moon, but it got us there to basically touch the surface and then come back and not necessarily have a sustainable presence. So, I think now there might be a need to give hope to people and give hope to humanity and allow us to have a unified undertaking that might kind of support that sense of urgency. I don't know if it's it's urgent in terms of we better do it now because an asteroid's coming to to kill the entire planet or something like that. I don't know if that's exactly what we're looking at, but I do think we're looking at kind of uh, a stagnation of society if there's not an effort to make sure that we use our technology to expand the human presence and give hope to younger people. A lot of people, you know, alive today didn't really see the moon landing and, you know, didn't have that sense of, of awe that I think, you know, is, is worth trying to get to happen again. And space is a pretty awesome place. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. So. And that perspective, too, maybe the perspective of getting outside of the just hyper-focused into the Earth's concerns could be healthy. But it's also often used as an argument for not doing it because people think, oh, okay, well, what about all our problems on Earth? And you know, we need to fix those first before we can actually think about you know, exploring the, the solar system or having a lunar outpost or anything like that. But I would argue that it would give people more hope, I think, than just looking at the ground does. 
That's pretty fascinating because you're talking about a metaphysical purpose to something that most humans probably think of as a scientific institution. Well, yeah. it also made me think of a couple of different things about the ways that these all play out together, right? Where mm -hmm. you have the idea of protecting the planet from an asteroid impact, where if you're in space already, because you focused on generating hope, then you have a better chance of actually protecting the planet. Then you also have this idea of... I've heard that a lot of people on your planet don't think that you've actually been to space. Mm. Or that the Earth is flat. And yeah, so, they're interesting ideas. And so going out to space gives not just hope, but also clarification for all of these other things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that for sure, you know, makes sense. Like, I gave more of a, a sort of spiritual almost reason, or at least a psychological, sociological reason, but you're right that it would maybe lay to rest any sort of debate people have with what the planet that we're living on or the moon that is orbiting around us, like these kind of things would become more concrete, actual, real facts for people, just like how concrete it is that the sun, you know, will rise in the east in their location, like these kind of things. Um, but the reason I didn't really say that scientifically, that's the main basis for exploring for humans is because we can do a lot of that with robots. And that is like mm -hmm. completely volunteered here that you don't necessarily need humans to go to Mars to fully understand it. It will to the human experience and maybe with things like sample return or even just trying to grow plants, like that kind of thing, you would benefit from having a human there. But you can learn a lot with robots and we already have, and it is a cheaper endeavor. So that's just kind of something to play devil, a devil's advocate here is that scientifically, there are a lot of questions that can be answered without humans. Robots can't fix themselves though. That's why we're- Not yet. Mm -hmm. But so it's, Interesting that you say that robots can move that same scientific thing forward because it seems like there's issues with that. Uh, communication delays, number one. Mm -hmm. You can get information from them, but it's hard to improvise on the spot. Mm -hmm. Then there's also the idea that space exploration seems like it has a goal of helping spiritually. I think you really did hit something on the head with that, where it's moving into a celestial sphere. It's moving into this almost heavenly body. It's like a sense of purpose, I think. Mm -hmm. We were talking yeah. to this uh, age researcher from your New York City the other day. Albert Einstein. And he listed one of the qualities of the really ancient humans that are still living. They all had some sort of sense of purpose and most of them had a spiritual practice that was regular. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that the, the sense of purpose is really important because it's just, I think it's generally good for a society to have 
the perception of itself that it's moving forward and that things are progressing. And sometimes it's hard to really understand that uh, day to day when you're living on earth these days, especially now because we have a new challenge. But really, I think that if we can become a space-faring civilization, we can have, I guess, something to be a little bit more proud of. Like this is our accomplishment is that we got very far and it's worth pursuing that further just because that is in our nature. Humans do want to see what's the next thing on the horizon. Like that is part of what makes us, I think, happy and feeling fulfilled. Is it a unique turn that the last time humans were trying to get to space, it was almost a militaristic venture. And now it seems like there's, oh, I wouldn't say it's peacetime completely, but it's less of this competitive one versus another. Does that mm -hmm. kind of help move in that direction of forward motion, not necessarily at the expense of your neighbor? Yeah, I mean, I would hope so. I would think that that's a more effective way to do things. Like before with uh, the Apollo era, you know, where it was kind of a, a, a us versus them type of approach, you know, you had to do things very quickly. And I think not necessarily all the time, but things could have been done better or more efficiently. And it's just basically it was blown to the wind because people just wanted to beat the other party. And if you don't do that, which I think is what's happening right now, you're now in the, the sort of mindset that you want to do things sustainably. You want to have a presence of humans around the moon and you want that to be there to stay. And you also want that to be now your jumping off point for explorations outside of the, the solar system or sorry, outside of the uh, earth moon sort of scope. Now you can go to Mars from your lunar depot or you could maybe eventually go farther. But right now I think that that's the, the only thing that's really in the immediate future. There have been talks of maybe a Venus flyby that would be manned, but it's harder to justify that just because of the fact that you can't go and step on the surface right now. It's not, not easy to do that. Why did you get interested in space? Me? Um, you know, I just always was. And <laughs> that's kind of just something about me. I grew up and the first thing I wanted to do was be an astronaut, but kind of uh, realized that that was not necessarily a, a guarantee. So I moved on to become a scientist. I think that the main person who really inspired me to pursue my dreams fully was the late Carl Sagan. Um, I'm a big fan of his work and kind of his, his message that he had for humanity, which was the sort of unified exploration of the cosmos. That's really what became something that I realized was an important kind of dream to hold on to. Cool. I like that a lot. Well, I have one last question, if you don't have any more, Quinn. I think I'm all right. What's your question? Well, I just want to know what kind of projects you got coming on. 
personally. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Well, soon I'll be moving into a new role, which will be more having to do with trying to start new things, start new projects um, in the life support field, I guess, and sticking more with kind of research and development, like very early stage of um, beginning. And these projects would all be mostly life support, but having to do with perhaps incorporating those biological elements, because that is a challenge right now with uh, the progression of the technologies is how do you get that biological component to interact and become part of the system? So that's kind of the next question that I'd like to dedicate myself to answering. You mean like plants? Plants or, you know, um, algae, that kind of thing, like, which is a form of a smaller plant, basically. But maybe having like a bioreactor system for different uses that would include uh, purifying your wastewater. That sounds awesome. And bacteria even maybe too, right? There's lots of stuff. Yeah, there's lots of stuff. So then it would be kind of what you were getting to in the earlier part of the talk is what do you have to do to have like a balance achieved? And I think that that's something that's kind of the next thing is even if you have a microcosm, a balance of different microorganisms, is that possible? I think that that would be an interesting thing to, to pursue. Do you know if anyone's experimenting with that on Earth? I think it's in the very early stages. I'm not sure about anything having to do with like interactions of different micro microorganisms, but I, you know, I could be missing something. Maybe there is. Well, it sounds cool. like really cool work. We'll yeah, I hope you come back and tell us about your reactor once you get it going. Yeah. Well, you, <laughs> once it once it happens, you never know. Well, when we come to Earth, we'll we'll stop by. We'll see what's going on. Okay. That sounds great. Sweet. Is there anything that you wish we'd asked you? Hmm. Well, I guess I'm more, I, I was kind of wishing I could ask you guys about your, your life support cycle that you have on your ship. Okay. It's very interesting to me. You said you eat rocks and you say you have worms that you eat. <laughs> so what do you need to keep yourself alive in your spaceship? Well, the good news is that Albaflossians have edited our own genomes to the point that we can respire with lots of different substrates. So that takes one element out of the equation for us. Ah, okay. Oh, I guess that that also, that leads me to maybe the one last topic that I think is very interesting, um, which is the, the concept of bioforming. And this would be where like you kind of mentioned, you guys have already done, is you change your own body to be able to survive an environment instead of changing the environment. So that's something that I think is a lot more down the line in terms of future um, prospects, but it's extremely fascinating to think about what type of manipulations could potentially happen to the human body to allow maybe a different kind of atmosphere to be uh, inhaled or something like that. So. Yeah, I mean, I can give you a hint. Yeah. So, you guys have these things called mitochondria in your cells, right? That is true. And it seems like your scientists 
are theorizing that they sort of symbiosed with uh, humans at some point. Mm -hmm. So I also saw some reports that deep down in the Earth's crust, there's all sorts of little critters that are breathing things that aren't oxygen. Oh. So that might yeah. be a place to go looking. That is that is true. It's a good place. And that then I think becomes like, would people want that? But again, I think that's for a, like a later conversation where, or, you know, later version of humans. Not everybody's going to want the same things, you know? Nope. That's true. Thank you for talking to us. Well, yes, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Have a good afternoon, day, evening, whatever <laughs> time it is on Earth. <laughs> you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.